Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and A.L. Levy. Hey, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and with me is a man who has made some of my favorite records of all time, Mr. Russ Russell. Thank you for being here. Thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. And if you guys aren't familiar with him, you should be. He's worked with artists such as Debu Borgir, Napalm Death, Seek, if that's how you pronounce it. I think, Sixth. I don't know. Yeah. Sixth, all right. Wild Hearts, the Gagas, Evile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's worked with a, a bunch of really, really great bands. And um, I just want to jump right into it because I think you know that Demo Borgir is one of my favorite bands on earth. Um, is it? Oh, cool. Yes, it, it definitely is. And you've worked on some of my favorite records with them. But So one thing that I was curious about was working with a band like that, they're known for being super polished. Yeah. But you also work with bands like Napalm Death, which are kind of the polar opposite. Yeah. Um, do you do you take a different approach? Like, how do you get into a different headspace? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I kind of do get into a different headspace for every project, really. But there's always something you can kind of drag from one to the other. You know, we can make Napalm a little bit more polished in places and we can make Demo a bit rougher in places. True. And is that something that you just bring to the table because you are who you are or something that they would specifically request? Um, well, with most people now, I mean, especially the Napalm guys... I've been working with them since 99. So now they just say, you know, do whatever you want to do. Whatever you got in your head, just do it. And uh, quite often they won't be here in the studio all the time. They're, they're so busy touring, they'll come in and lay some tracks down and then disappear on tour. And they just say, like, go for it, do what you want. So they'll come back and I say, well, check this out. Do you find that bands like that are more likely to, to give you that kind of leeway? Bands that you've been working with forever? Yeah, and also older, more experienced bands. They seem to be, in general, a lot more relaxed because they know that the job's going to get done and they, they put forward their ideas and they kind of trust me to bring their ideas forward and and incorporate my own ideas, but without wrecking theirs. You know, it's it's funny because lots of people ask me if we're dealing with big bands, we have to deal with big egos. And in my experience, the bigger the band, the easier they are to work with. For the exact reasons that you just said, they they know the deal and they know the work's going to get done. I often find that with the smaller bands, that's when you have the most... Uh, the most backseat drivers and the most ego problems. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's exceptions to every yeah. rule, but uh, but yeah, absolutely, you're right. In general, it's the more inexperienced people who are constantly leaning over your shoulder going, do this, do this, do this. So let's go back to the beginning. What attracted you to 
production? Uh, well, right at the start, I mean, my father used to work for an electronics company in Germany called Grundig, uh, and they sold TVs and home hi-fi and and you know, basic pro audio gear, you know, reel-to-reels and microphones. And uh, we always had reel-to-reel tape in the house and microphones. So from the age of about seven or eight, I just started setting it up and recording stuff, recording myself hitting things and pots and pans. Uh, My auntie gave me an acoustic guitar. I couldn't play it, but I used to just kind of tune it up and hit it with pens and record (laughs) that. And uh, and then record like all our like Christmas family get-togethers and stuff like that. And used to do like my own little pretend radio show, uh, listening to the top twenty. And then I'd cut out the DJ and do my own voiceover to it and things like that. So it, you know, it's always been in my blood, really. Sounds like it. So you were doing that as a kid? Yeah, seven or eight years old. Wow. So. I'm assuming that you cut out the DJ on tape? No, he just used to sit with a radio <laughs> by the microphone. I just used to turn <laughs> the volume down when he was speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Oh, totally amateur. <laughs> uh, well, that's that's okay. Just the fact that you started that young is kind of amazing. How? Uh, at what point... Did you, would you say you went pro? How old were you? Uh, well, the, the kind of intermediate stage was um, when I was a teenager, like 14, I joined a punk band and um, we wanted to record some demos and somebody had a four-track cassette recorder, uh, the Fostex, whatever it was, and nobody knew how to use it. So I, they all looked at me and went, hey, you do it. So I started recording these demos and learning about bouncing and stuff. And um, other people started asking me to do it. So at like 15 years old, I was doing like local band punk demos on a four track and then an eight track. And then it just just escalated from there, really. There was several kind of big stepping stones, I suppose, getting to work in a proper studio. You know, I had a few, few really cool people showed me a lot of stuff quite early on. So I had a really good head start. But then I guess the biggest step was when I met uh, a guy called Simon Effemy, who's a great producer. Uh, He's done all kinds of stuff. Um, And he took me under his wing and he he said, yeah, come and work with me. How old were you when that happened? Uh, Oh, blimey. 20, 24? So you already had like 15 years of recording under your belt. Now, I mean, obviously the stuff you did as a little kid was little kid stuff, but still yeah. 15 years or so of of your head going in that direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can't do anything else. The, uh, the only other thing I've ever done is uh, art. I mean, I've never had a job. <laughs> I've never, never done anything apart from art and music. That's pretty cool. I mean... So, what did he start paying you, or did you start unpaid when you were twenty four? Uh, I was on about ten pounds a day, which is well at the time was probably about five six dollars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, who just it, it got my smokes and got me a beer, and that was about it. Well, the all the you know all the food groups. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all, all all the nutrition a, a kid needs. We were very lucky. That, uh, well, I was very lucky that we were working on some pretty decent um, 
album projects in good studios. So there was usually catering and usually a few a few paid trips to the pub. So I've never heard of Simon, but so did he work with like bigger bands? I'm assuming there was a catering budget. Yeah, I mean Simon he's worked with all kinds of bands. Uh he he's worked with uh, Crowbar and Helmet oh, okay. and uh Cancer and there uh, and lo- loads of bands. I I can't think off the top of my head. So but yeah, but those are real bands. So Yeah. So was that a big jump for you going from what you were doing before to working with them? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of I'd met him a few years before. He was managed and was really good friends with a guy Rudy Reed, who I went to college with, who was my manager for a time, and we're still really good friends now. And he introduced me to Simon, and we kind of you know got to know each other over a couple of years. And he knew that I was interested and I was doing stuff in small studios, doing demos, you know, helping out mostly local band stuff. And he said one day, oh, do you want to come and for a visit? And he was in a great studio called Linford Manor. Absolutely beautiful studio. I can't remember what he was working on. Um, but I, I was just a visitor. I wasn't working. And I started to notice that the in-house engineer had, was missing some things. They were mixing and, and there was things like a couple of the toms weren't opening the gates and stuff like that. And Simon had his head somewhere else at the time. He was he was dealing with other things. And the engineer was supposed to be, you know, sorting out gates and things like that. All the technical stuff. And I, I, I didn't want to say anything because I felt kind of a bit out of place and a bit rude. But when we had a break, I, I said, oh, I'm really sorry, Simon, you know, if I'm speaking out of turn. But I've noticed that some of the gates aren't opening. Uh, and he went, what? He was like, fucking hell. <laughs> and uh, after that, he uh, he just said, hey, do you want to come and work for me? You know, you're obviously on the ball. And yeah, we just started working together. And we did, we worked together for about six years. I want to talk about that for one second, because I think that's really interesting. That One thing that I guess interns get told a lot, or, you know, there's studio etiquette where you're not supposed to speak up. Yeah. Unless it's your session, right? And so I've seen lots of interns get removed from sessions for speaking up out of turn. And I think it's it's very clever and very wise that you waited until a break to say something. So you didn't put anybody on the spot or embarrass anybody or hold up the session. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you've got to know your place. I mean, even at that point, I knew that, you know, I knew my place. I always figured that I was um, kind of like the ball boy in tennis. I would just kind of quietly wait by the side and wait to run in when needed. Well, I just think that that's... Everyone listening should just take that story and um, internalize it because I feel like there's always room for pointing something out like that, especially if, you know, if you see that something's getting missed and you have the opportunity to help somebody fix it, someone in the position of, like, Simon would only appreciate it because, um, like you said, his head was somewhere else. So you're helping him make the record better. But I guess we always tell people that one of the best ways to get a job as an engineer, besides obviously knowing what you're doing with audio is to have good social instincts 
and to be a cool person to hang out with and know your place, like you're saying. And I, th- I think that's number one, really, because everything else you can learn as you go along. Yeah, exactly. But you, you really do need to have the right attitude uh, and approach in the first place and know when to speak and know when not to speak. I mean, it's almost like you can say anything if you say it in the right context and at the right time. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I'm sure that had you said that in the middle of the session with everybody there, it wouldn't have led to this opportunity that changed your life. Yeah, actually, I've not really thought of it quite like that. But yeah, I guess you're right. You know, I mean, whether you're right or not in your opinion and your observations, there's a time and place to do it. If you steam in right in the middle of someone's thought process, then they're going to be pissed off so much. You won't get another shot. Yeah, especially when you're the guest or or an underling. Yeah, I mean, I've I've experienced it from the other side as well, you know, being a producer and working in different studios and you get get a young guy in his, his first couple of months on the job and, um, you know, usually the studio owner will say, is it okay if we put this guy on your session? He's not very experienced. And I say, yeah, that's cool because I, you know, I do my own engineering. I don't need an engineer. But, yeah, it's, you know, obviously it's cool to have someone to run around and plug things in for you. But, yeah, I've been absolutely horrified with some of them. They just kind of steam in and start changing stuff that you've done and, you know, telling you telling you you've done it wrong. And, like, <laughs> what, you're 17 years old, you've just left college, you, you did one year at college and now you're coming in and telling me I've just done it wrong. Okay, well, you got balls, but unfortunately you're not going to get very far. <laughs> Well, I've definitely experienced that as well, and this led to some very, very short internships. But conversely, the guys who have been very, very cool about it now mostly have careers. So yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of the the young, you know, studio assistants that I've worked with over the years, the the good ones who were who were instantly good, you know, good good character. Uh, most of them are still in the business. Funny how that works. And, and the others, who knows where they are? Not in the business. So. <laughs> all right. So, all right. So, you get the job with Simon, and then what? You're suddenly working with cooler bands like Helmet, Crowbar. You've got catering budgets, at least enough money for cigarettes. Then what happens? What's next? Um, well, obviously, at first, I was just an engineer. You know, assisting him as an engineer because he's an engineer too. But it was it was right at that time when computers really started to take over from tape because we started on tape. I started on tape, but computers were really coming in, and and I could see it because um, my mother uh, she was massively into computers at a very you know very early stage of computing, and and I was brought up with home computing, you know, from the same sort of age as I started recording on tape. Uh, obviously, they weren't for audio back then, you know, but, uh, you know, and home computers were <laughs> pretty pathetic, really. But because I was used to using them, when they appeared in studios, everybody else was going, oh, my God, it's the work of Satan, get it out of here. And I was saying, no, no, bring it on. Are we talking mid-90s? Yeah. That's yeah. what I thought. Yeah, mid-90s. Or early 90s, really, I guess. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, no, mid-90s, yeah, you're right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember going to the studio as uh, as like a 16 or 17-year-old back then, 
yeah. to get recorded. I made friends with w- one of the big producers in Atlanta who, well, by I don't mean big as in doing like the major label acts, one of the big local producers who did all the local bands. Like, um, And I remember him talking about computers coming into the studio as if it was like the worst thing you could <laughs> possibly imagine happening to recording. Like, yeah. Like def like he was acting like it was Armageddon, yeah. basically. Yeah. Well, and most people did. They were like, "What the hell is this shit?" But <laughs> I, em- I embraced it, and I said to everybody, "This is the future." And everyone went, "No, no, 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 no. You know, you're totally wrong. That's never going to happen." And I said, "And I, I swear to God, I wish I'd put." I wish I'd invested in Pro Tools at the beginning. <laughs> 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 if I'd have had shares in that. Because I saw it and I knew that was how it was going to go and I could use it. I was totally comfortable with using it. So at that point, Simon said, okay, great, well, you take over that side of it. I'll deal with the analogue side of it. And uh, as my skills came up, not only with the engineering, but, you know, he taught me about man management and session management and all the producer skills. And then he said, well, you know, you're not really my assistant anymore. We're co-producers now. So if, if for the last few years we worked together, we were a co-production team. You know, he, he dealt with the board, I dealt with the Pro Tools, and we shared everything else between us. Wow, that's, that's, quite, that's quite an honour, don't you think? How did you feel when he uh, basically told you that you're no longer the underling. Oh, yeah, amazing. It really was like, yeah, the ultimate pat on the back. Especially from him. I mean, he's such a cool guy. Uh, You know, I I held him in such high regard. And still do, you know. I I don't see him enough, actually. I wish I saw him more. Well, can always hit him up on Facebook. (laughs) We, We do, we do from time to time. But, you know, he's so busy and I'm so busy. Well, you know, good problems to have. I think it's interesting, though. I've had the same thing happen where someone that was previously under me kind of got too good to be under me anymore. And we ended up kind of co-working on things because it didn't make sense to call him my assistant. It just didn't. He's too good. Yeah. He's better than me at some things. So. <laughs> yeah, I've got that problem. Well, not problem. Uh, I've got that situation now with my son. He's uh, he's now coming through and taking over the big chair. You trained him right, I guess. Yeah. How, how old is he? He's twenty three now. Just the right age. So, yeah. At what at what age did you start him? Oh, as soon as he could stand up, giving him microphones and just say, "Yeah, shout into this," and then look here it comes on the screen, and here we can play it back. And uh, I mean, we've we've got some some songs, some kind of like remix songs that we did together when he was like oh, I don't know, like eight nine years old. And he would choose. He would say, "Oh, I want this loop. I I, I want to want to sample Public Enemy on this bit, and I want to sample Bjork on this bit." And we would make up these little tracks. Uh, yeah, I've still got them all stashed away, much to his embarrassment. <laughs> but now, but he's great. He really is. I mean, it. it, it I'm I'm starting to learn stuff from him now. We've worked with another father-son duo that are incredible as well, the uh, the Churcos. 
mm-hmm. Kevin, Kevin and Kane Sherco, they've done like Ozzy Osbourne and Five Finger Death Punch and uh-huh. a bunch of stuff. And basically, Kane, Kane kind of grew up a similar way with a with genius dad that kind of just put it, it put the studio at his fingertips from from the point he was a kid and now Kane is like I think 29 or something mm-hmm. but uh he's he's incredible and I think that he's been working since he was a teenager cool in the cool. studio That's so great. I guess a word of advice to all the parents out there start them young yeah absolutely yeah I mean kids love it they soak it up so quick you know I, I yeah. thought it would be yeah uh you know, a much bigger task to teach, but not at all. I didn't really have to teach. He just observed and soaked it up. You know, and and now working with my daughter as well, which is amazing. She's come much later to it, um, and she's more on the musical side of it, but I've just done a session with her a couple of weeks ago as a singer, and now she's starting to get interested in the technical side of it. You have a little... Little, uh, little fat production factory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, you know, they got to keep me when I retire. <laughs> true. <laughs> true. Absolutely true. So smart planning for the future. <laughs> <laughs> so, how long did you work with Simon as a co-producer? Uh, I think about two, three years. The last, the last two, three years we were together. We were kind of uh, billed as sort of partners. And then what happened? Uh, well, there was there was a big change. Uh, he had he had a a lot of personal changes in his life, uh, and moved to a different part of the country. But there was also a huge shift in the industry as well at that point. And this this is when budgets really started to plummet, and a lot of people started asking, like, you know, if we could do it with one of you, that would work out much better financially. And a few people started asking me. Do you think you could do it on your own without him? And I said, well, of course I could. But, you know, I, I didn't really feel very comfortable about it. Um, and I talked to him about it. And he, he he was somewhere else completely at that point in his life uh, and doing other things. And he was very supportive. He just said, yeah, go for it. So, yeah. Well, that, that, that makes it easy. Yeah. Yeah. Because, cause it, yeah, it wasn't an easy thing for me to do. You know, I, I felt pretty rotten about it. The first time somebody said, "Can you do it on your own?" But he was okay with it. So yeah, he was totally okay with it and very supportive, and always has been. Well, I feel like that's almost the the story of every every successful producer who's come up under somebody that happens at some point. That's happened with like every single person that I know who at one point trained under somebody. Yeah. Which is lots of guys that are really, really great. At some point, the clients or the bands will say, can you just do the next one? Yeah. And in general, though, I've noticed that as long as the person approaches, you know, approaches their former boss or partner honestly about it, it generally goes pretty well. Just because that's, it's almost like that's the, uh, it's like the coming of age ritual almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's, 
it's terrible if, if people do it sneaky behind someone's yes. back. You know, and I and I think I think if that's heard within the industry, then it can be very damaging. Even if you think you're uh, taking a step up, you could be taking a massive step back if you just stabbed someone in the back doing it. Well, in that case, I think it's more considered poaching. Yeah. Yeah, which I've just been a victim of this week, actually. Have you? Yeah. I can't name any names, obviously, but, uh, yeah, somebody's just really stabbed me between the shoulder blades this week. Fun. Ah, it's fine. I'm, I'm not... No, I'm almost happy about it because it's not going to hurt me. Well, I, it's almost inevitable. It will happen from time to time. It's just, I, I guess it's... Uh, I feel like there, there's an unspoken protocol where if you're getting a gig that someone else previously had, especially if you know them, the protocol is to just call them and talk to them about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just just a just a little message, just a little email, anything, just to, so that it's not you know cloak and dagger shit. Yeah, exactly. And it's I mean, kind of back to what we said before, kind of how when you told Simon that you noticed the dude was missing the gates mm-hmm. on the toms, you picked an appropriate way to go about letting him know. There's also an appropriate way to let people know that you're getting what used to be their gig. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he knew... I mean, obviously, I was doing my own stuff all the time anyway. I, I didn't solely work with him, so I always had my own projects on the go and a lot of bands that I'd been working with, you know, since their beginning and my beginning kind of thing. So, but it, it just kind of started to cross over into a few of the projects that maybe we would have done together. I'd started to do on my own. And then, and then I guess I guess the big one was when Napalm Death said, "Do you want to do the next one on your own?" And that really was like, "Oh, okay." And did was he cool with that? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. He, he was busy as hell doing other stuff. So this was a big step for you. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Were you at all worried about being able to handle the the actual job of doing it on your own, or no, were you totally not, confident? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. It's probably the most confident I've been in my whole career was at that stage. I knew I could take the chair. And you did. Yeah. I mean, it, it really helped because obviously I'd worked with them before. And we did two albums. Uh, me and Simon did two albums with them and an EP. So I, I knew the guys really well. And at the time, I was their live front of house engineer. So I was totally comfortable with them as people. So... And they knew I could do the job, and I knew I could do the job. So it it, it was a really easy transition. So you had a, so this was your third record with them. Yeah. So that brings up another question. There's something I've noticed is you get a lot of repeat clients. Yeah. Do you have any advice for producers coming up about how to ensure that your clients come back, or is there anything you've noticed that makes them come back versus when you've had people not come back to you? Well, I mean, I have to say that, you know, again, I've been very lucky that it's the good people that come back. And I don't, (laughs) you know, I don't just mean the good bands, but the good people. Yes. And I think that's a lot to do with it. When you connect with people, you know, I don't always recommend as a producer that you try and make friends with every person you work with. 
but it, but in that situation, I became very close friends with with the Napalm guys. You know, obviously, I still am. We talk, you know, almost on a daily basis to at least one of them. So yeah, I mean, it, but it's a double edged sword as well because obviously, if all your clients come back to you, then pretty soon your whole calendar is going to be full up. And you're not going to get to work with anybody new. I, I've actually been in that situation yeah. before. And, and, and that's cool. It's totally cool. You know, when, when it's your buddies coming back to do another record, it's great. But sometimes it will just happen that, you know, two, three, four, five bands on the trot are bands you've worked with before. And, you know, after sort of six months, you're kind of thinking like, oh, I want to do something different. <laughs> I want to do something fresh. And, you know, I want to meet some new people. At the last studio I worked at, there was kind of, well, two studios ago, there was this rotation almost, mm. where it was like a two-year rotation, where the schedules were almost identical every two years. Yeah. Because it would be the same bands, like at the same time period, Yeah, two years apart, you know, because their album cycle would be over, and they'd be doing the new record. So it was like almost two years to the date the schedule would kind of almost repeat. And it was great because, you know, it's nice to have money coming in and records going out. But at the same time, it was also frustrating because there it almost felt like there was nobody new coming in. Yeah. Yeah, and you, as a studio as well, you feel like sometimes you're not expanding and you're not growing if you're not getting new clients in. Yeah, exactly, because at some point, you know that band's going to break up, or or inevitably, at some point, they're going to go with somebody else. Yeah. If not, and it's not even necessarily because something went wrong. Maybe it's been six records, Yeah, and, and they're, they just they're want, ready for they a change. Something ch- yeah, absolutely. And, and I keep saying this to the Napalm guys, because we're, we're currently talking about the next album. Um, just going through some early demos and talking about the schedule for the next album. And, and I, I do say to them, like, please, you know, you, you don't have to come back to me. You, I, I, won't, I won't be pissed off. But Shane says, who the hell could I ever record with ever again? <laughs> <laughs> You're basically a part of the band at this point. Well, yeah, in a way, yeah. How many records have you made with them? Uh, is it nine albums? Jesus. Or eight, eight albums, maybe. Eight albums and some EPs and some live DVDs and, yeah, a lot of stuff. Uh, plus all the side projects, because they're all in, you know, ten different bands. So you got Lock Up, which is Shane's side project, um, with Nick Barker, who used to be in Dimmu. And Kevin Sharp from Brutal Truth on vocals now. Um, and uh, Anton Reisenegger, he's an amazing guitarist. Um, we just did an album with them. or No, it just came out. We did it about a year ago. So, yeah, I mean, Shane's always keeping me busy with all his side projects. Uh, and me and him have got a band together now as well. We've been working on an album for about four years, which we've just finished recording. So, yeah, he, he keeps me busy all the time. So... You think your friendship has something to do with with why this is kept up? Yeah. Oh no. Obviously, it could be kind of difficult, you know, being close friends. If suddenly, like, either 
he wanted to do it with somebody else or I didn't want to do an Apalm album, it, it, it might be a little bit weird, I guess, being such good mates, but uh, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I think we'll work together forever. <laughs> so We're what almost about telepathic some, now. Yeah, that you read each other's thoughts at this point. Yeah. That happens with me and some of my friends that I'm really close with. We can predict what the other person's going to say. For sure. Um, what, what about some of the other bands that you've had uh, repeat business from over the years? Did you become close friends with them? Or was there something else that you think? Uh, some of them. A lot of them, it's, it's you know, obviously it's friendly, but it's still business. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I, I've got quite so close with many other bands as I have with the Napalm guys. But yeah, I guess it's just the the no stress no stress in the studio. I just won't have it. You know, the studio shouldn't be a stressful experience for anybody. Some people thrive on it. And, you know, occasionally you have to make almost false stressful situations just to fire people up. But but the whole process of recording, really, you know, if you don't enjoy it, well, why are you doing it? You know, and I, I, I don't understand... When bands come to me and they say they work with other producers and they get and they say, "Oh my God, he was a fucking nightmare. He was so rude to us the whole time. He just kept, you know, beating us with sticks and and telling us we were shit." And, and I just <laughs> like, yeah, I, I just don't subscribe to that way of producing. Really, I mean, obviously, if somebody needs to stick up their ass to get them going, then you know, I'll provide that. <laughs> but <laughs> but the, uh, I, I don't get the thing of beating people down. You know, it's a bit too military training for me. I don't get it. So how do you approach it when you have a... You know how there's some bands or artists, like you said, who thrive on stress or... It's almost like they create it without even realizing it. Yeah, I mean, obviously we have had really stressful situations. But um, but the the experience as a whole, you know, I, I just want people to get to the end of it and whatever stressful situations there might have been along the way, I want them to say, wow, I had a really good time, I really enjoyed that. Because I really feel like you can hear that in people's music, even if it is, you know, <laughs> grim black metal or, or whatever. I, I think there's a, an, added, an added element to an album if people have enjoyed making it. I completely agree. There's, like, a vibe... It's not, a, it's not, I don't know if vibe's the right word. There's a certain kind of energy that the music takes on through the performance if someone is relaxed and having a good time, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, there was a, I really can't name names here. I wish I, wish I could, but um, there was one band came to me who had worked with a very big name producer before, and the drummer... He was a great drummer, and I knew he was because I'd seen them play live, and I'd been to the rehearsals, and we'd done pre-production. He's a great fucking drummer. And uh, he came into the studio, and he was literally shaking. He was a bag of nerves as we were setting up. And I said, what's the problem? And he said, I hate recording. I said, why do you hate recording? And he said, oh, the, the guy we worked with before, he just broke me down. He told me I was shit. He told me I was no good. He told me I was wasting time and wasting budget. And I thought, well, that's no way to get the best out of somebody. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and the guy literally w- was shaking and he, he couldn't play. 
And I said, but how come you can play live? Oh, that's different. I said, yeah, but how is it different? Live, you got one shot at it. In the studio, if you fuck up, we can just do it again. He was like, yeah, yeah, but no, it's different, it's different. And I spent the, the first day, I just sat in the room with him. Just play, just play. You know, we're not recording, just play. We'll go through some tracks, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tinker around with mics, I'm going to move stuff around, but let's just hang out together and you just play. And we started recording and he put down one song and he came to me and he just gave me a massive hug and he said, thank you so much, you've completely given me my confidence back. That's great. You cured him of his PTSD. Yeah. It's interesting. I've experienced the same thing. And oftentimes I've had that with smaller bands because their previous experience recording was with like some local dude who didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. So they come out, you know, they've had a really bad experience, like someone totally unprofessional and a really bad result. And so then they'd come to my studio not having any other studio experience. And so, you know, if they don't have any other studio experience and their last one was semi-traumatic, then they're bringing that with them. It's baggage. Yeah. And so they kind of somehow think that, it will be that way again because that's how it was. Yeah. And they have no frame of reference for how good it can be. And I've realized, that I asked them about their previous experience because I realized that that's usually what it is. It's usually something bad happened in the past. They don't have a, a good frame of reference for how good it can be, and so they bring it with them. And I, uh, I'll tell them, I'll do what you do, which is, not even really record at first. Just try to hang out and yeah. uh, get relaxed and take time to get good tones. And If you don't address it, if you spot something like that and you don't address it straight away, it can be like poison. It can just, just seep into everybody else's vibe. Um, mm-hmm. Before you know it, you're on a sinking ship and it's much harder to turn it around later than... You know, so you're much better. You know, it, it's it's almost like the same as get it right at the source. Your source sound is everything, but your source vibe is everything. Make make sure that people are happy right from the beginning, because otherwise, you, yeah, you're gonna sink. I mean, I've definitely had the experience where I didn't get that source vibe right, and those were some very tough sessions. Mm. Um, definitely, yeah, some- we've all had them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you can't you can't always fix it. Some people are unfixable. <laughs> Man, talk about some nightmares. I think that that's one of the I mean, obviously, and I have to say this, obviously some people listening have like been to war and been to like some very 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 like life-threatening level of stressful situations. So I realize that it's not anywhere near that, but I got to say that when you're in a project with somebody and you have to sit there for 12 hours a day for weeks in a row and if uh, there's a bad vibe it can be very psychologically crushing oh god yeah yeah to everybody and yourself yeah 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 exactly because there's that synergistic effect too that it's not just one or two people it then becomes everybody yeah and it's just it's just not good the biggest part of recording a band for me is the psychology of it you know and and over the years i think that's probably what i've learned more than anything is when a band comes in you very quickly 
suss people out. You you get to know who is the alpha male, who is who is leading the band, who is the pain in the ass, who's going to give you the most trouble. And usually within the first 24 hours, I've got everybody kind of pinned. I know who's going to do what. I could almost write it down and put it in an envelope and seal it and then give it to them at the end of the album and go, here's my <laughs> prediction. <laughs> you're going to be a pain in the ass. You're going to be cool. You know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and how do you how do you navigate some of those waters? Like, do you have, once you realize who the pain in the ass is, do you just avoid that person or uh, no uh, I, I, usually the opposite actually usually I try and bring them in really close to me you know, keep kind your of, enemies close yeah kind of break down their barriers a little bit and so that they can't they can't say at any point that they weren't given a fair shot you know because if you shut them out they're like oh oh I've been shut out of everything yeah no bring them in close and then they haven't got that excuse say what's on your mind and usually, within a couple of days, you can find out what their their little niggles are and sort it out, and then they're cool. So I've kind of noticed that the pain in the ass is usually because they have some sort of an issue with the process that may not have anything to do with you, even. Yeah, they've, but, either, they've either got an issue with another member of the band, yep. or they haven't done their homework and they're not ready to do their own parts. So what they'll do is focus on somebody else uh, uh, and give them a hard time. You know, like, uh, just for example, say the guitarist isn't ready, he doesn't know his parts, he might give the drummer a really hard time so that we spend more time recording drums to put it off until he's got to do his parts. But it's so easy to spot. I can spy a mile off. <laughs> <laughs> what about with the per- the personality, well, with the band member that doesn't know what they're doing? Well, it depends. It depends if they're honest about it. You know, if someone comes to me and says, look, I'm, you know, I, I really don't know half my parts and, 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 I, and I can't play this bit at all. That does happen. Then it's like, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? You know, usually... I've got to say, nine times out of ten, it's probably the bass player. <laughs> <laughs> so then you go, okay, which one of you guitarists wants to play the bass on this bit? <laughs> but um, it's just it's just all about helping people and helping people through. And if it means you need to hold their hand and guide them gently through and, you know, massage their ego a little bit, then that's what you got to do. If If somebody needs to be shouted at a little bit, then... You got to shout a little bit. I don't like doing that, but but sometimes you think, well, this is the only thing that's going to sort it out. So you have a have a little little rant at somebody, and they usually buck up pretty quick. <laughs> but there's no point in doing that to somebody that is either going to fight against you or is going to crumble into a heap of tears. You know, you, you you have to really work out the psychology before you act on it. I've made the mistake of being too brutal with someone who couldn't take it, and that only backfired. So you really need, I completely agree, you need to tailor your approach to who it is you're talking to. Yeah. You can't just expect everybody to react the same way to what you might have to say to them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the guy who's the best musician in the band is also the shy one in the band? Yeah, quite often, yeah. It's uh, I've had some interesting situations where 
the guy that wants to do the most playing is not necessarily the best guy. And the best guy is kind of shy. And so he'll let the other guy do it. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that a good few times. Yeah, that's always an interesting situation to work out. Yeah, and then there's the situation of, you know, if you're doing some real fast, you know, I guess thrash is the the main example f- for me. Uh, you've got two guitarists. One of them can play certain riffs better than the other one. And you have to then broach the subject of like, okay, well, sorry, but this guy's going to do your guitar too because it's the only way it's going to be tight. Unless you want that complete separated two-guitar feel, of course. But, you know, if it's a really tight thrash riff, then, hey, this guy's going to do both sides. And most people are cool with it, but sometimes you get someone go, what? Oh, what? I'm not going to play on my own song. Well, (laughs) yeah, well, maybe you should have worked harder. (laughs) (laughs) So... Changing topics, I want to talk about Dimu Borgir a little just because I'm a fanboy. Yeah. But also I know that a lot of our audience are very interested in records that combine lots of different elements like orchestration and synth mm-hmm. with metal. And I'm wondering, what's it like for you to take on a project of that kind of scope? Like what kind of headspace do you have to get into and... Or do you need to do a lot of pre-planning? Well, I guess the best example is the the new Dimu Live DVD Blu-ray that's coming out in a couple of weeks. I mean, we recorded it ages ago now. I think it was like four years ago, was it? Three years ago, something like that. We recorded it in Oslo. Live band. Obviously, you've got six-piece band with full orchestra and full choir. I think there was something like 148 microphones on the stage. <laughs> Uh, we had nine mixing consoles, three recording trucks. It was huge. Jesus Christ, dude! <laughs> yeah, it was it was crazy, and and they took me over to oversee it all. <laughs> I mean, luckily, uh, I mean the guys from NRK, the the Norwegian broadcasting company, they were recording it, and they're so good and such nice people. It was so easy. They, I mean, they, they really could have done it without me, I, I guess. But, yeah, I did have a few few pointers. <laughs> but, yeah, just, just kind of pulling that, all that together and then mixing it in surround sound when you've got the, the guy who uh, scored everything for the orchestra, he's there behind me with all his music spread out going, why can't I hear my second oboe? I go fuck your second oboe. It's the solo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had some some really funny times. It was a classic bit. Oh, I got to tell this story. This is brilliant. There's a one of the demo songs. There's a church organ kind of arpeggiated kind of solo section. I can't remember the song now. And uh, the orchestra guy, he's going through his music and he's shuffling all these bits of paper. And he's saying, "Well, what is this? What is this?" I said, I didn't write this. And I said, no, it's in the original song. It's the keyboard player. He's playing the church organ. He said, well, but it, it, it doesn't, it, that's, not, that's not what I intended. 
But it's the original <laughs> song. It's Dimmu Borgi with orchestra, not the other way around. <laughs> I mean, we ended up the best of friends, but we had some real fights in the studio. It was brilliant. And I said, anyway, I like it. I think it sounds like Philip Glass. And he stood up and he smashed his fist on the table. He said, I oh, fucking yeah, hate Philip Glass. <laughs> I was about to say, that's, uh, that's some fighting words right there. <laughs> yeah. But hey, you ended up friends. Yeah. But dealing with that amount of stuff, I mean, especially mixing, it's just like, oh, my God. Okay, where do we start? Where do you start? Uh, well, I started with the core of the band, of course. You know, being as it was Dimmu Borgir tracks and they're the guys in the middle of the stage. So, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of cleaning up. I'm mean, going through all the microphones and just cleaning out anything that wasn't being used just trying to get some kind of focus because, I mean, it really was a, just a blur. You, you push up 148 channels and just go, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a massive 148 blur. channels live. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty crazy. But we did it, you know. Again, with the help of the, the guys at NRK, I mixed it at their studios, which are fantastic. Yeah, that was that was... Probably the most hectic session, track-wise, and being on top of it. I mean, the, we were. I was in recording truck one, where everything else is being fed to, and uh, we'd done a full rehearsal the day before, and everything had gone great. But but I kept saying to the guy, "Are you sure? Digital console? You know, oh, what if it crashes?" And he was like, "Oh, you old school fuckers, you all say that." You say, like, don't worry, this is the best in the world, it never crashes. Except for this time. Yeah. Came showtime, the intro's rolling, the orchestra starts, and my desk goes, just goes totally black. Like, oh my God. <laughs> and I said, well, it's still passing audio because I can hear it. So I think it's just the control surface that's gone. And I just said, right, go to the truck next door where all the recorders were. I said, just go and make sure it's all still recording. Uh, and he ran to the truck next door and there was a little window in the end of the truck. And I looked and his head popped up in the window and he just gave me the thumbs up. Yep, still recording. <laughs> said, oh, thank God for that. And he came back in and he said, well, at the end of this song, we could just turn it on and turn it off again. Uh, turn it off and on again. And I said, no way, if it resets itself, we're screwed. You know, at least at the minute, it's passing audio, and it's exactly how I set it up yesterday. So I said, just leave it. Just leave it how it is. And he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to get a beer and go watch the show. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, did you plan this? <laughs> and so I guess you just uh, you just fixed it later. I mean, yeah. whatever. Yeah, I mean, luckily, the output from my desk was only going out for the... There was a small part of the show that was broadcast live as it happened, and that was what my desk was outputting at the time. All the all the splits were going to the recorders, but my desk had nothing to do with the sound of what was being recorded. So basically, I said, "Well, it doesn't matter, does it? Because if, as long as it's all still being recorded, we'll mix it later." <laughs> so, when approaching something like that, what what precautions do you take? to make sure that you don't get into a situation that you can't back out of? I guess, like, do you capture DIs on the guitars? Yeah, yeah, we did. I don't think we used them in the end. I think everything was okay. Oh, no, actually, no, yeah, we did, because 
on the first <laughs> the first song as they came in, I think there's a clean guitar part, and he stamped on the wrong pedal. <laughs> all his Whoops. clean all his clean parts came out. <laughs> So I think I think we did have to reamp the first little bit of the show, but apart from that, I think it was all the amps. I mean, because the cabs were off stage, the cabs were all underneath the stage anyway, in little ISO areas, so we had good cab sound. But things like, um, you know, not having the drum kit too close to the orchestra, and even then, obviously you got your front row of violins, a lot of very delicate sound going on, and you got this brute of a drummer. Just, just like what, five meters away, six meters away, whatever. And he's like, "Oh my God! All I can hear down the violins is cymbals." So I said, "You know, come on, let's screen it all off." And we screened the drums and we screened the front row of the orchestra, which helped a hell of a lot. With a, with an acrylic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, luckily they're so well prepared. They had a truck full of screens ready. I'm pretty sure they would have done it if I'd. Have, not said, you know, after they'd heard it in the truck, but that was pretty nasty. I can't, I'm trying to imagine trying to EQ a violin with all this cymbal bleed in it, and it just seems like the biggest nightmare ever. Yeah. Luckily, though, there's so many of the violins, and there was no violin solos, so it was strength in numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. But they had to move all the pyros because every time the, the flames went off, it put all the violins out of tune. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and they were really concerned about it because, you know, some of these are like 50,000 pound violins <laughs> and there's flames right in front of them. So, yeah, they all had to be moved. Did you mic up the pyro? Uh, no, we didn't actually. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think you can hear it on every, pretty much everything it was near. But just sample in explosions. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have got a, a favourite of mine. It's a sample of a bomb that I've been using for, it must be 15 years now. Somebody once said to me, I want the sound or I want the feeling of a bomb going off underneath the beginning of a chorus in a song. So I made this this fake bomb sound out of a kick drum and distortion and reverb and then more distortion and then more reverb. And, and I've done it loads of times since, but I, I just made this one magical bomb sample. And <laughs> I have used it on every record since. <laughs> it's always there somewhere, just very subtly, just, you know, for the big middle eight or for the big chorus hit or or for a big, big double tom hit somewhere in the song, just layer the bomb underneath it. <laughs> it's just every single record you've ever done has the bomb on it. I think That's amazing. pretty much, yeah. Pretty much every record since then has got it on somewhere. It's your signature, signature yeah. move. It's like the Wilhelm scream. <laughs> I, I love that scream. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I heard it somewhere else i'm trying to remember oh the wilhelm scream yeah it's been everywhere i've even put that on a record (laughs) oh amazing i won't say which one though we might get told off (laughs) i'm pretty sure that i heard the wilhelm scream in logan Mm, i bet you did yeah i mean it's a competition now with with all hollywood movie uh sound designers it's a competition now who can sneak it in they all do it. It's amazing. I know I heard it in the latest Star Wars movie. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I and mean, if you look on YouTube, the Wilhelm Scream compilation, 
It takes you all through every movie it's been in, and there's hundreds of them. It's amazing. I I love that you brought it into metal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it suddenly occurs to me, we've been talking for an hour, and yeah. we haven't even mentioned, like, anything really technical or... <laughs> That's kind of yeah. good. That's good. I'm I'm quite happy about that. Yeah, I mean, if you want to, we could talk about that stuff. Well, that's, that's kind of what I was expecting, but I'm actually relieved to talk about other stuff. I feel like we definitely talk about technical stuff on this podcast, but I feel like we do, you know, nail the mix, and we have so many videos also through our fast tracks that are intensely technical and that I feel like our podcasts should almost be more about the human side of everything. Yeah, people skills. That's the the stuff you can't learn from a YouTube video. (laughs) Yeah, and we definitely will do talk about technical things on the podcast, but I also think that a podcast is not necessarily the best... uh, medium for learning that kind of stuff mm, yeah because if we talk about like a a compressor setting does it really make a difference if you can't hear the source that it's working on yeah 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 it, it does it makes me chuckle when uh you know i get a lot of people say oh can i see your settings for this and your settings for that and i say why why do you why do you want to see that it's really not going to help you you know, unless you're there in the situation and and see how it's all been built up together, then then yeah, sure. I mean, I'll send you all of my plugin settings if you want. It's, but it's really not going to help you much. Yeah, that's well, that's what we do differently with now the mix uh, with people actually getting the tracks to work on when they then watch the live stream with the mixer mixing. Yeah, they've already had like a month working on those tracks, so. The whatever the mixer does makes a lot more sense. Like they can actually relate it to something, as opposed to if you just you know like the famous Andy Sneep C4 settings that he posted like in 2005 that everybody then tried to copy. Yeah, I didn't see that. Oh, it was this famous thing on his forum, the Andy <laughs> Sneep C4 settings. He just posted a screenshot of his C4 settings on some album and everybody was like, "Oh my god, this is the this is the way in the light." And <laughs> I tried it. I tried it too, and it sounded like shit. And I Of course. It's like of course it sounded like shit because I wasn't working on the same album as him yeah. and I didn't and I didn't do every single other thing he did to that guitar chain. Yeah. He didn't include the very important part that you need to figure out those settings for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I feel like, I mean, that said, I do have a few technical questions for you. Oh, yeah, sure. So, <laughs> you want to talk about them now? <laughs> oh, whatever. whatever. Whatever comes next, I'm good. Well, I think that I still want to know a little more about the uh, the demo thing and about the the live recording. Actually, I do have a technical question now. So, how do you keep that from becoming overwhelming? Do you, um, like, how do you organize a session like that? Uh, I guess dealing with things in sections. I mean, particularly the orchestra. You know, divide that up into strings and brass and percussion, so that you're only looking at 
you know, a few groups of things rather than hundreds of things. I mean, straight away, psychologically, that's much easier to deal with. Okay, then you can go into the group and you can, you know, okay, let's arrange the violins and the violas and the cellos. But once you've kind of done that, then you just stick that out of the way and forget about it. It's just one thing called strings. So, yeah, I mean, grouping. Grouping is vital. Even in smaller sessions, if you've got 40 tracks of stuff, once you've dealt with the 40 tracks, you know, condense it, get it down to groups. It's much easier to deal with and much easier to think about. I know guys that condense things down to, like, four or five groups. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, drums, bass, guitar, vocals. Yeah. It's so much easier to get a bang and mix that way when you're mixing five stereo tracks. Yeah. So... Yeah, and tons of automation. Yeah. <laughs> when you're cutting out the the silence on that many mic'd instruments, did you do that yourself or... Yeah. Um, is You did that yourself? Yeah. Oh, except, except for... I, I must give a shout-out to uh, Russell Cotier. Cotier, is that how you say it? God, I forgot how to know. say his name. Um, great engineer, great producer. He actually, uh, at the time, I was so pushed for time, I just put a post up on Facebook, can anybody help clean some Tom tracks? And he said, I'm not doing anything, I'll do it for you. And he cleaned all the Tom tracks for me on the drum kit, which, considering there was six Toms on the kit, that was a lot of cleaning to do. Yeah. And, yeah, he went went ahead and did all that. And then, for a while, it looked like the whole project wasn't ever going to be released. So I always felt really bad. Shit, dude, I asked you to do all that work, and it's not even going to come <laughs> out. <laughs> but now it is coming out. So, yeah, everybody, go get your copy in two weeks. <laughs> Actually, you can pre-order it now. <laughs> Nuclear Blast sent it to me. I have to say it sounds... Great. Really? They haven't sent me one. <laughs> Those bastards. Well, they well they gave me a download thing. Uh-huh. I guess I'm on the press list or something. Um, it sounds incredible. It's always really scary, though, like when you get the master back, especially from a DVD or a Blu-ray, because you find that a lot of the time what happens is everybody's fighting for space on the disc. The video people, the people who are doing all the menus and graphics, the people who are doing all the bonus material, everybody's fighting for those megabytes on that disc. And you quite often end up where your mix comes back and it's been, you know, encoded in a slightly different way to make more space for other things. And you listen to it and you go, that's not my fucking mix. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm quite, con- I, I talked to the guy who was, doing it on this Blu-ray. I'm quite confident that I'll be happy with it when I hear it. So do you do your own mastering or do you get someone else to do it? Uh, I quite often do my own mastering now. Uh, I don't I don't enjoy it particularly. It's something that came out of necessity, really, because I, I was tinkering around with it because I always thought, you know, it was the black art. Any mastering engineer would always tell you, oh, yes, you know, it's the black art. <laughs> and I always, always used to think, yeah, but you're only dealing with two tracks. I have to do much more work than you do. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of started to look into it and get into it, and I tried a few masters, and I wasn't very confident about it, but I kind of, you know, got better and better and studied it a little bit and just listened to records that I liked and tried to make my mixes sound like that and gradually, you know, developed 
some mastering techniques. I, I never wanted to do it, but we were at the townhouse mastering in London, which was a fantastic place. I think it's gone now. Yeah, it has gone now. Uh, mastering one of the Napalm albums. And the guy there, he was clipping it. And it was distorted. And I, and I said, it, it's clipped. It's distorted. And he said, well, it's Napalm Death. And I said, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's the wrong kind of distortion. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like it. And all the rest of the band were saying, no, just back off, Russ. You know, you're too close to it. Let the guy do his job. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah fair enough, fair enough. So I went home and I did my own version of the master and ended up giving them both versions and everybody picked my version. Boom, there you go. And I thought, <laughs> right, actually, I do know what I'm doing. Well, it's funny because you said that uh, uh, what got me thinking about that was how you mentioned that sometimes the DVD audio will come back and you'll be like, that's not my mix. I can't think of a time that that's happened more than when I've sent something to be mastered. Mm. It comes back, and I'm like, what the hell happened? Well, that was another reason, because I was, I was uh, mixing the Wild Hearts album, and that got sent away to a few different places, and it kept coming back. Like, well, it's, it's, it doesn't even, it's not even recognisable as my mix. What the hell have they done to it? Or the other one was, well, they've done nothing to it. <laughs> at all <laughs> it's just a little bit louder and and I started to think well it almost seems in a way it's not how good the mastering engineer is technically it's how much he understands the source of what you're doing and I guess a lot of mastering engineers don't understand extreme music that's something that I noticed is that it's a lot like musicians I've noticed that you know, when I went to school for music, the musicians were typically great at everything except for metal, or they're great at metal and nothing else. <laughs> and with a lot of mastering engineers, it's almost like, and this isn't, I don't know if this is true anymore, but I know that I felt like it was true for a little while, yeah, uh, like no, in the yeah. mid-2000s. I, I think you're right. It's not true anymore because there are some fantastic people out there doing great metal masters now. But yeah, going back a while, it wasn't so good. Yeah, and the guy and but some guys would do only metal and they would be okay. But generally like I would like somehow sometimes have to work with like a dude who has like all these major label pop credits and rap credits and you think that because he's been on all these huge records that he would do a great job and you give him a metal record and it sounds like garbage yeah because they made the low end as big as they would on a hip-hop record or yeah. something and just they just didn't get it and they didn't care to get it either but now i definitely do think that's changed and I know some mastering engineers now, like Mike Kalajian. I don't know if you know of him, but he's phenomenal. Who really, really understand the genre. Mm. Like, they, they get it. Mm. Yeah. You know, there, there, there are some guys... I mean, I, I still prefer to send my stuff away and have it mastered, if I can. Because I think it's always good to have somebody else have a different look at it. You know, mm -hmm. in a different room and different gear and and a different headspace, you know, they, they can really pull something out of it that you, you didn't quite get, you know, especially if you, if you have a good uh, relationship with them. I mean, I, I've got, got a good relationship with several mastering guys who I would love to send everything to, 
but unfortunately budgets don't allow it a lot of the time, which is another reason why I do my own mastering, because with the budgets available, uh, these people are going to go to somebody who's not the best because that's all they can afford, and it's going to come back like garbage, as you say. I mean, there's one guy in particular, old school, real old school guy, Kevin Metcalf in London. He's fantastic, and he does every kind of music. And he taught me so much, not just about mastering, but actually about mixing as well, because he would always give me a a really good critique on my mixes. And the, the one day I was with him, and he was mastering this album, and he, he used to hover over the board with his hands out, ready to dive in. And this one day, he didn't dive in. He didn't touch anything. He just sat back and crossed his arms. And he listened to the whole song. And he said, that, my friend, is a perfect mix. All I'm going to do is turn it up a little bit. I thought, bloody hell, I've made it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know what you mean, man. That's like the greatest validation ever is having a mastering engineer tell you that they didn't need to correct anything. Yeah. And I, I would dearly love to work with him all the time, but he's just prohibitively expensive, unfortunately. Some of the best guys are, for sure. I remember back in the day, my like in 2005 or six, my band had Ted Jensen master a record. Uh-huh. I think it was like $5,000 for okay. the one day. Wow. For, for like a four-hour session. Wow. He did a great job, though. I fucking hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he he definitely did a phenomenal job, but holy shit. I mean, that's what the label wanted, and I wasn't going to argue with them, but I, I actually flew there for it. And literally, he worked for four hours, did a few things, and that was that. Yeah. Boom, done. But it was also a Colin Richardson mix, so it was uh-huh. a combination of really good elements put together. Yeah. So I've seen that you've got a pretty interesting technique when you're miking drums where you put a mic over the top of the drummer's head, then you run it through some sort of compressor like an 1176. Yeah. And I have a similar technique. So I'm curious, can you talk about that a little and where that comes from? And It came from a, a really old engineer at the BBC in London. Um, we were doing a radio session and we got there late and we didn't have a lot of time to set up. And um, also the other thing with it being the BBC, because it's all a union, I wasn't allowed to touch anything. I could tell them what I wanted, but I couldn't actually touch like even the microphones or the mixing desk or nothing because I wasn't in the union. So uh, they set everything up. They, they put all the mics on the kit and I was saying, I want this mic here and this mic here. And then the guy threw a coals over the top of the drummer's head. And I'd seen it done before, but I I kind of chuckled and went, yeah, you know, it's not the Beatles. And uh, he said, no, no, he said, you know, we'll get half the sound off this mic. I went, oh, well, yeah, I'm sure you do with your your little lightweight indie bands, but, you know, (laughs) this is something a bit different. And sure enough, you know, we went into the control room and, he spanked it with an 1176. And I went, oh, my God, that's like... It was half the sound at the top of the kit anyway. So, yeah, I've done it ever since. And what kind of... That was with the Coles, but what do you... do? Is that what you normally do it with? I don't have one, unfortunately. I, I keep keep trying to push for that. But 
I, I have to clear all my budgets with somebody else, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's still, it's pretty high up on the list. I think, I think they'll come soon. But the thing is, you know, you can't buy one, can you? You've got to buy a pair. Yes. Yeah. So, no, I still don't have a pair yet. But I've got various other ribbons, and or I'll just kind of emulate that kind of ribbon sound just by, you know, softening off all the top end. Honestly, and this is going to sound crazy, but I've been doing that technique with an SM7B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, and it sounds yeah. great. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I've done it with a 58 a few times. Yeah, I could see that working. Yeah, and when, it, when it's a more trashy, punky vibe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've got, I've got, I can't remember what it's called. It's one of the SE Electronics, you know, which, you know, they're okay for cheap mics. I'm, I wouldn't exactly rant about them. But the uh, the ribbon one, I stuck that up and I was like, oh, actually, that's pretty good. It has that same kind of vibe about it. You know, there was something else that I was hearing that you did, which was something that I've done and gotten great results with it. So I wanted to hear your take. I heard that sometimes when miking up a guitar cab, you'll use a 57, but then you'll put some Audix drum mics on as well. Yeah, that was a pure experiment, just because I'd bought the whole case of the drum mics, all of them, and I just wanted to see, you know, compare them. Oh, what's it like compared to a 57? So, yeah, I stuck the whole lot up. Including a D6? Uh, No, actually, I didn't put the D6 on that time. I have tried it a few times, like with more doomy stuff. You know, if you want to get that bottom end, it gets it. But yeah, the the D two, the D four, I had those. What is it? I can't remember what. I'm terrible with numbers. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, but we had three, four different Audix mics set up in like a flower shape around the cone. It looked ridiculous. And uh, it was funny, actually, because there was, there was a, an engineer friend of mine came in and he said, oh, can I take a picture of that? I said, yeah, sure. And he, he put it up on the Sneep forum and it, everybody jumped on it and went, who the fuck's this idiot? He obviously doesn't know what he's doing. That's never going to work. <laughs> uh, and that turned out to be the guitar sound for the Napalm album, which was spectacular, i got to say. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when people criticize something that they can't hear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing is, you know, that there's a very famous picture of someone miking up a head, an amp head instead of a cabinet. (laughs) Obviously you can make fun of that, but always blows my mind on these forums when people talk, they give criticism about things that they can't fucking hear. How can you talk about it if you can't hear it? What the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, the thing what the thing was though, I mean, I, I only intended to use the fifty seven and one of the others, maybe. And we kept put, putting them up and listening to each one and going, Oh, that's, yeah, that one sounds pretty good. That one sounds pretty good. And I accidentally turned three on at the same time. And uh Mitch Harris, who was playing guitar, he said, Oh my god, dude, that sounds fantastic. And I said, No, it doesn't, it's just louder. And he went, no, 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 it sounds really good. And I said, no, you, you're just fooled into thinking that because it just got louder. And he went, no, listen. And I went, oh, okay, all right, let's, let's, let's gain match this up. And I said, you're right, it does sound better. I went, oh, my God, three mics. I really don't want three mics on there, but oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. 
all right, sounds good. And then just just taking the piss, I said, okay, well, why don't we just put all of them on then? And I turned them all on, and we all went, holy shit, <laughs> sounds amazing. Well, sometimes it does. And I said, no, but it, it can't. It can't possibly. There is no way that all those mics can be in phase. And, of course, they weren't in phase. But the different phase cancellations just somehow miraculously made this awesome sound. And we spent about five, ten minutes just adjusting the balance between the mics. And yeah, we which, were, which record was this on again? I can't remember which album it was now. Now uh, I want to know. It was either... I, I think it was uh, Time Waits for No Slave. Because I want to hear this guitar sound now. I, I think it was that one. Yeah, it must have been. Okay, well, I'm going to check that out because now, now I want to know. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, I've tried it since and I've never, ever got it to work ever again. So this was just the, it, it the was stars aligned. It was pure fluke, absolute fluke. And uh, honestly, I, I taped off the whole area. I wouldn't let anybody in the room. I said, if one of those mics moves an inch, we, we've lost the sound. Nobody go in there, and I said, "Come on, dude, we got to track all the guitars today." And he was like, "What?" I went, "All right, okay, I'll, I'll give you two days, but we've got to track all the guitars right now because if anything changes, it's going to be ruined." Speaking of that, do you, am I correct that you own a Kemper? Yes. You see now, yeah, that would be the first thing I would do would be profile it. Did Sneep turn you on to that? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, because he, he's the one who turned me on to it as well. He back. just got it, and he, he he just used it for the first time. And he said, "Have you heard of this?" And I said, "Well, yeah, but isn't it just another pod?" And he went, "No, it's really not. No, not even, not even close." So uh, I I checked out his. Went wow, and then got in touch with them, and they were very kind enough to give us a deal, and we got two of them for the Napalm album. So you got yours. Did you get yours pre-release? No, no, they were they were out, but it was very early doors. Yeah, so like 2013. Uh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, that was maybe when 14. He, yeah, right around then. Yeah, that was when he told us about it, and I immediately got one. One of the best decisions I've ever made. <laughs> oh, it's the it's the best piece of tech that's been invented in the last decade for sure. So. You right now, you, the moment that if you got that guitar sound now, you would immediately model it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't blame you. <laughs> and just hope that it would, with the amount of gain that was on it. <laughs> well, I've heard that some of the newer firmwares. I haven't, you, I haven't done done it in a while, but like some of the newer firmwares are much more capable. Oh, they can of, deal with the noise. I've heard that they can. Oh, great. Yeah, I've been waiting for don't that. Quote, don't quote me on that. But, but uh, I, I'm so reluctant to upgrade. You know, I let everybody else do it first. Yes, I understand. And see what goes wrong. But yeah, I think I, I'm probably about two years out of date, probably, on mine. Well, I remember 2014 was the year that they figured out the low end, finally. Yeah. Because that was a big problem at first. That you. Yeah, you always had to dial in the extra afterwards. Yeah. And I found there was a firmware update in 2014 that kind of fixed it. Yeah. To a degree. Well, it, it, that's why I'm reluctant to, to 
do any updates because I'm so happy with how mine sounds now. Yeah, then don't mess with it. Yeah. Buy a new one. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I, I do need another one, actually, because all, uh, all the LEDs are going on mine. So if you get, yeah, put the new firmware on the new one. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope they'll give me another one. Well, not give me, but uh, give me a deal on another one. Yeah. I don't see why they wouldn't. Well, uh, you, know, you never know. Yeah. People are giving away less and less these days. True. Uh, understandably. Well, you know, amp sims have also come a really long way. Yeah. So um, I think that I think that even back then it was there weren't that many amp sim options, and so not any good Kemper, ones. No. Yeah. So Kemper was like the best of the best, and I still think it's the best. But the your regular software amp sims now are much better than they used to be. Yeah. But- what was I using the other day? I can't remember what it was called. A fifty-one fifty simulator. Uh, Revolver or no, was it TSE X fifty? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. That's oh a good wow! One. I got some great sounds out of that. Yeah, man, that's a that's a really good one. I recommend anybody listening go download that one. Isn't that one free? Uh, or like fifty mm, bucks or something? Uh, no, I think the I think you can use the demo. And, it, and it's less limited than most demos are. Oh, okay. I think it just doesn't save. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing is only like 140 bucks or something. You know, that's pretty, really? that's pretty good for a 5150. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, well worth it. So let's talk about your uh, techniques for recording metal vocals. First of all, do you have any way of uh, dealing with vocalists to make sure that they don't totally blow themselves out, like the way that you pace your sessions or anything? Well, that's something you have to kind of ease into gently. I mean, you know, obviously this is a, a another good point, like we were saying earlier, about working with people repeatedly. You know what people are capable of. But when you work with somebody for the first time, you know, I always say to them, please don't push yourself too hard. And you're going to know before I am if you're pushing yourself too hard, if you can feel it, if you're feeling hot, you know, if you're feeling rough, then stop. Just stop. Don't be a hero. Because, you know, it's usually about 10, 15 minutes later that I start to hear it. And by mm-hmm. that by that point, it could be too late. They might have already shot themselves. And, okay, they might be okay the next day. Or it but might, they also might not. Yeah, they might not. I mean, people have massively different recovery rates. You know, I've worked with some people who, uh, once they're shot, that's it for a week. They, they won't sing again for a week. You know, and when, when you're booked in for an album session, that's devastating to a session. You know, you, you, you're still doing vocals right up to the last day of a mix. Yeah. Um, which, which uh, okay, it's totally possible, but it's not really what I want to be doing. It's hard to mix and track at the same time, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't like it. It's, sometimes it's okay, depending on what it is. You know, if it's just like, oh, I want to stick in this little extra backing vocal or I want to stick in oh, this, yeah. you know, then fine. But, but when it's major parts, I really would like it all done before I start to mix. Yeah, absolutely. What about your vocal chain? Do you hit a lot of hardware on the way in? Well, i got to say, I'm quite um, quite an oddball in the fact that I don't like SM7s. Actually, you know, it's just me on the podcast this time, but Joey Sturge is my partner in this. Um, He hates SM7s too. I I just don't... I I keep trying it because 
you know, for years, everybody's told me, well, SM7B, it's, it's the aggressive vocal. Uh, and I keep trying it, and I just don't get on with it. It just doesn't capture what I'm looking for. You know, it's a very polarizing mic. In our Facebook group, I've noticed there's people are divided on it. Like, either, like, I love it. I think it's great. But, uh, and I know a lot of engineers who think it's great, but I know just as many engineers who fucking hate it. I mean, I have used it, and it's worked, but far less times than it has worked. It, it, I, and I do still keep trying it. I, I'll always put one up when I'm working with a new vocalist because obviously it's all down to the voice. You know, the voice has to suit the mic or the mic has to suit the voice. So I do still keep trying it. And a couple of times I'm like, yeah, okay, that that's good. But I think people have this idea that it is just the mic to use and they'll put it up and just go with it without trying anything else because... Because they've been told that's the mic to use. I don't think you should do that with anything audio, honestly. No. Except for a click track. <laughs> but even then, some bands sound better without a click. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I always shoot out various mics with vocalists, too. Unless I already recorded them before and we have already done it and, like, we know what he sounds great with mm. if it's a repeat client or something but i uh i totally agree you shouldn't just go with an sm7 because someone said you should yeah what i mean what do you like instead of it most of the time uh we've got uh, an old 87 which we had um recapped and it sounds phenomenal on pretty much everybody i've used that on so many records now it just works. It, it you put it up, and it, it's not like a wow microphone. You, you don't instantly go, "Wow, that sounds fantastic!" But it just covers all bases. And when you come to mix, you just slide it into the mix, and it just works straight away. Don't have to EQ much, you know, a bit of brightening maybe. But it's not like some of the some of the new mics where you put it up and you go, "Wow, that's really impressive." But then when it comes to the mix. You're like, shit, I've got to EQ the fuck out of this to get it to work. Do you ever find that an 87 is a little harsh on screaming? Uh, not if you, not if they're not too close. You know, luckily we've got a really good room so that they can stand back. Uh, we don't get too much of the room sound in there. And it, it, but yeah, I mean, if somebody's right on top of it, then yeah, it's, it's not very pleasant sometimes. But then sometimes, if I'm doing, you know, a combination of clean and aggressive screaming vocals, uh, sometimes I'll just give them a 58. Just scream into that. All the napalm stuff is done with a 58. I think that 58 is one of those classic mics that uh, that just end up on so many heavy recordings. And, uh, I mean, didn't weren't they used on, like, Metallica recordings? Yeah, I, I think... People would be amazed how many how many albums are done with a fifty eight. You know, people don't think it's good enough because it's not expensive and it's not a condenser and it's not or whatever. But I mean, you think how many shows have you been to? And nine times out of ten, the guy's shouting down a fifty eight and it sounds great. So why not? I mean, a lot, of course, a lot of it comes down to technique. You know, if you've got somebody who shoves it in their face and swallows it, it's not going to sound very pleasant. 
But somebody really has got good mic technique, then the 58 sounds fantastic. Do you, so do you hit any compressors on the way in? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Man I, man, I love hardware compression on vocals on the way in. I don't understand how people who don't do that. Well, the thing is, because I was brought up, you know, with in the tape days with limited outboard, you had to do it on the way in because you, you had to do everything on the way in because there wasn't enough compressors and EQs and gates to do it on the way out. So you, you had to mix as you recorded kind of thing, or at least do half the work, uh, and I still do. I commit commit everything to tape. Well, to, I, I still call it to tape. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I EQ and compress everything on the way in. What, what's, what are your go-tos for that? Uh, I've got, I'm going into either usually the Chandler EMI channel with the EQ, or I've got a Neve uh, something or other. I can't remember the number. And then Tube Tech, CL1B, proper one. And I'm also loving now the Warm Audio 76. And I, war, Warm Audio is a very cool company. I love it. The 1176 is awesome. And it chained the two together, go from go preamp to 1176 to the Tube Tech and just do a little bit with each on the way in. And it's smooth as hell. So three stages. How many how many dB of gain reduction in total on average do you think? Ooh, probably a good probably at least three, four on each. Yeah, okay. No, no, actually probably a little bit more on the on the seventy six and a little bit less on the tube tech. Because there's there's something wrong with our tube tech. We we've had it looked at. It's got too much gain. It, it too much compression and too much gain to it. I, I, we sent it back to whoever deals with them now, and they had a look at it, and they said, "Well, everything's as it should be, but even when you're on two to one, it sounds like you're absolutely slamming it." And I've used used plenty of tube techs. I know that they're not usually like that, but for some reason, ours is just super aggressive. Uh, and I love it. <laughs> I don't want to get it fixed. <laughs> so, I was about to say, nothing you're saying sounds like a bad thing. No, it's really good. Really good. I use it on snare drums and vocals, and it's fantastic. So I've got um, a few questions here from the audience uh-huh. that I wanted to uh, to ask you. So Brooke Johnson was wondering, how do you go about capturing and channeling the intensity of a band like Napalm Death without losing the clarity and the articulation? Uh, actually, i got to say, I don't really consider that my skill, but theirs. They're just that good. Yeah. and it, I mean, I've always kind of joked, you know, I said to Barney that he doesn't really need a microphone. He could just scream down the cable and it would get in. <laughs> He's that intense. And he, he does his vocals in the control room right next to me, and it's punishing I mean, he's spitting all over me, screaming in my ears, and it, it really is punishing. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, that's why he can do it, just with a 58 in his hand. No headphones in the control room, just fucking go for it. But also, it's, it's, it's how much they push when they play. They push down on their instruments so hard, the intensity of what they're putting in is so brutal... 
there, it's very easy for me to capture. What you've got to do is, you know, make sure that that takes are tight and leave enough space for everything to happen. Because, I mean, the bass sound is huge. Um, we call it the tractor. It's, it sounds like <laughs> it's diesel-powered. And, you know, that alone could take up the whole mix space. So you have to carve at it pretty heavily with the EQ to make some space for everything else. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I guess, I guess that would be my part of it, is just carving everything up and making space for each other to let it come through so that it's not white noise. But if they weren't already badass at what they do, no amount of carving no. No. would help. No, no, it, it, it comes from them. It really does. So uh, Rufus Ambler was asking, how does your mixing workflow change from working on studio material to, say, mixing the Big Four live show? Yeah, you, you have to have a bit of a different headspace and a different workflow um, because... Because your your end goal is different. Um, I, I think it's a mistake to try and make a live show sound like a studio production. I think you need to leave uh, a bit more of the raw dirt in it and not try and clean it up too much. And Because obviously, when you go and see a live show, it's blaring at you at, at 100 plus dB and you've got flashing lights and people screaming all around you, and you've probably had a few beers. And So so listening to that show at home is going to be a very different experience, and you've got to try and mix it to kind of capture some of that live excitement so that it doesn't turn into a dull experience in your living room. So, yeah, I guess you kind of focus on different things, especially with something like the Big Four. I mean, you've you got amazing full stadium miking, there, there, I think there was seven, no, five, five different positions, I think it was, of crowd miking all around the, the stadium. And it's amazing. I try and get as much as that in as possible. I mean, ultimately, I, I've got to say, Andy Sneap did the final mix. But, you know, from my experience with mixing other live stuff, try and leave in as much of that crowd vibe as possible, even if it does make it a little bit messy and blurry at times it kind of gives you that that feel whereas obviously studio workflow is all about precision and yeah different vibe completely i hope that answers the question yeah for sure eric burt was wondering when you were tracking guitars for abrahadabra was your approach in finding tones different knowing that there would be so much orchestration to work around yeah yeah, it was actually quite difficult in that sense, you know, trying to predict exactly the amount of density of what was going to be on top of it. And it also, it's, uh, it's very difficult with them as well, getting tones, because the riffs are so different from section to section and song to song. You know, you, you get some, you know some good metal chugging going on, but then you'll get the the speed pick black metal stuff. And a lot of the time, that's not done as an overdub. It's all done as part of the rhythm track. So you you kind of have to find a, a tone that works for all riffs and is powerful, but not too overbearing so that it takes up all the room where the orchestra's going to sit in eventually. Plus, you know, plus all the keyboards and samples and everything else. I mean, Dimu really is 
one of the densest uh, productions I've ever worked on, studio and live. There's so much going on. Yeah, it's kind of incredible. But we did, we, we got a great guitar tone on the first day, and then the amp blew up. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to ditch that and get another one. <laughs> what do you mean it blew up? Like I don't know, it, it fried, it just fried. Oh man, that sucks. And, and the guitar tech had a look at it and he just said, yeah, I can't fix it now. It's going to, you know, we need parts and it's not just valves. Something's gone. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Kemper, that was pre-Kemper. Yeah, yeah, we didn't have a Kemper. Yeah, that was what, 2010? Nine? Was it really? Bloody hell. Yeah, right. <laughs> Time flies, it man. It does. It really does. So Charles Elliott was wondering, what was it like working with Brucaria? Uh, Difficult. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's cool. I mean, obviously, most of the guys I know really well. But it's, it's always difficult when you've got things that are done over such a long space of time in different studios, you know. And, I mean, some of the the people didn't even, you know, weren't in the studio at the same time, weren't in the same studio at all. Some of it was recorded years later. Things were re-recorded different guitar tones, different vocal sounds. And it was it was a little bit of a mess, I say, when when I got hold of it. It took a lot of smoothing out to, to try and make it sound like a cohesive record. But yeah. I can I can only imagine with that type of band getting something from various sessions. Yeah. And also because they're all such experienced musicians, they've all got a really strong idea of how they want their individual parts to come across. I mean, again, they trusted me to do it, but but they had a specific idea of of what they wanted. You know, like with Barker's drums, he he said he wasn't particularly happy with the studio where they recorded the drums and it didn't really come out with the tones that he wanted. So he said, you know, can you help me out here and get it to somewhere closer to where I want it. So I I worked on the drum sound with him and he was like, yeah, that's fantastic, I love it. But then then other people in the band suddenly went, well, what the, what's happened to the drum sound? <laughs> oh, we kind of got used to how it was. I'm like, yeah, but that's not how he wanted it. And when you've got big individual characters in a band you want them all to be happy. You want them all to have their own character in their instrument and they're playing. So, yeah, you've got to fit a lot of big characters into the mix. So that's... uh, Maybe that's the bigger band version of that ego thing we were talking about earlier, where maybe it's not that you're dealing with ego problems, but you are dealing with big personalities. Yeah. Yeah, no, it wasn't... wasn't, I wouldn't say it was ego shit. It it was just, you know... yeah, people are really good at what they do and they want to sound a certain way yeah. and they're identifiable. They they have their 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 identity. Exactly. They want to be identifiable in what they're doing, which is totally understandable and totally acceptable. It just makes yeah. it a little bit harder work. But you know, we did it. We got through it. <laughs> so, here's one from Jack Hartley. Can you give some insight into the work you did with the Berserker? Oh, wow. Uh actually I didn't do a great deal with them, in a way. I, w- I was more a kind of advisor 
for most of the time. I did mix the one live DVD thing, but I met them on tour in America. They were supporting Napalm on a US tour. I, I just, I loved it. It was so crazy. Like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, I remember when I heard them for the first time, it was like, oh my God, yeah. what the <laughs> hell is going on? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I I got really good friends with them, particularly Luke, the main main dude. And you know, we still stay in touch occasionally. Uh, he's back in Australia now. But yeah, we, from that point on, anything he did, he would always send it to me and go, "Dude, what do you think to this? And how can I make this any better?" And then and I can't remember which album it was. And he said, "I've done the whole album with no microphones." I said, well, "What do you mean?" Okay, what, you've programmed the drums? You went, no, well, no, I played them on an electric kit. Okay, yeah. Guitars are all done DI. Okay, yeah, yeah. I said, but what do you mean, vocals? You can't do vocals without a microphone. He said, well, I don't know if you'd call I it did. a microphone. He said, it's the pinhole mic in the back of my laptop. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I, listened to, I listened to the vocal tracks on their own. And I said, what's all the reverb on it? He said, no, it's not reverb. He said, I did it in the bathroom because I thought it sounded really good. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jesus. yeah, I, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't uh, exactly produce any of the albums. I was just more of a, an advisor. Or, or not even advisor. I was just the guy who went, what the fuck have you done? <laughs> <laughs> I've, never heard, I've never heard of, I did it through the laptop mic in the bathroom. Because it sounded better <laughs> before. It actually, you know, in context of the album, it works. <laughs> I think that if you've never heard the Berserker before, you need to hear them because they're literally insane. The name, they have the perfect band name yeah. for what they sound like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here's another one. This one is from Azael Buendia Haye. I, I probably totally butchered that name. What was your biggest challenge during Apex Predator, Easy Meat? That album is such a masterpiece. Wow, yeah. There was a lot of challenges in that one, actually, because when we started talking about it, they they said, yeah, we've really, really got to push push it hard on this one. And I said, what, like we haven't before? And they said, yeah, but it's got to be different. We've got to come up with some new angles and, and incorporate all the things that we love. All the things we've ever done, we've got to incorporate all of it into this one album. And there was so yeah, many. All of it. Yeah, everything. Everything. The experimental, the brutal, super fast, punky, proper metal. You know, everything. Just, just all, all encompassing. Napalm. I don't want to use the compilation word, but you know, a, a con- condensation of Napalm. Then we were working on the track Apex Predator. And I said, we just want noise. It's not not musical. There's no riffs particularly. Uh, we just want noises, industrial scrapings and metal sounds and everything. And we got a bunch of uh, like milk churns and dustbins and pieces of metal and pipes and baseball bats and drumsticks and all kinds of shit just set up in the live room. And uh, we just went and beat the hell out of it all and recorded it. In complete insanity, uh, no no particular sort of plan or beat in mind, and then they buggered off on tour for a couple of weeks, and they went, "We'll sort that out while we're away." 
So I went through everything we'd done and arranged it into beats and we'd, we'd done a load of noise with Shane on the bass where he wasn't playing notes in particular, just, just making these really weird, distorted, unearthly noises. And I, I had a, a library of about an hour of that stuff and I went through that and found pieces that really excited me and just pieced it all together as a, as a track. And I, I always imagined that it would be the outro to the album because usually the experimentals were always at the end of the album. Um, but they came back and Barney heard it and he said, I've got a vocal thing that will work really well over that. Uh, and we did the vocals and started adding other stuff like cello. Um, there's some low piano notes in there and uh, there's even a... It's even a vacuum cleaner in there. Gotta have the vacuum cleaner. I was doing the hoovering in the studio, just tidying up one night. And I thought, this, it's actually the motor in this, it, it's fucked. It sounds like it's on the way out. It's making a real grinding noise. Gonna have to get a new new vacuum. And I went, oh, hang on a minute. Oh, I'm gonna mic this up. It sounds really good. And I mic'd it up and just ran it through some distortion and went, holy shit, that's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of the sound in there. It's actually our, our fucked vacuum cleaner from the studio. <laughs> but, yeah, they, we worked on it so much and everybody was enjoying it so much, working on something so different. And then I remember one day Shane just said, this is going to be the album opener. I went, holy shit, dude, are you sure? That's, like, that's pretty brave. And he was like, well, why not? Why not? It, it says volumes about where we're going and what we're intending. So, yeah, it ended up being the first track on the album and my favourite. <laughs> and you put a vacuum cleaner on every album since then. <laughs> no, I will. <laughs> no. <laughs> Can't have a metal record without the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> yeah. So, final question. This one is from John Gansner. And he's wondering, what's a battle you don't want to deal with when recording bands, past or present? Oh, wow. Uh, Cor, what do you think he means by that? And that could be so many different things. Well, what do you think he means by that? It's quite a difficult question <laughs> in, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, I, actually, do you know the thing I most hate about dealing with sessions is mates of the band? yes. Yes, yes, yes. And not just because they don't know studio etiquette, but they it can actually really poison the minds of the band. You know, it's like we were saying earlier about knowing when to speak up and, and knowing what's going to be the right thing to say for the good of a session. Obviously, mates of the band don't have a clue about any of that. And they'll come in, they'll put their beer down on the corner of the mixing desk... <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I'm you know, I'm pretty strict on that kind of shit, obviously. But but you can't have eyes in the back of your head all the time. You know, a few times I've come back from taking a whiz and find somebody sprawled all over the mixing desk with a pint in their hand. What the fuck are you doing? Get out! You know, I've had other people on the phone behind me, and uh, somebody one day even actually asked me, "Could I turn the music down because they were having a phone conversation?" Oh man. <laughs> Like, you're in my fucking studio. Go outside. Also, <laughs> fighting. Fighting is a is a pretty big one to deal with. That's 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 a battle <laughs> in the true sense of the word. A battle I didn't want to deal with. I've had a few bands that have had punch ups in the studio. Oh, like physical fights. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Proper proper <laughs> fists, fists and weapons. 
weapons, huh? Uh, well, you know, a, a pint glass or a bottle or whatever they've got in their hand launched yeah, across the room. That's a, that, that's a weapon. Yeah. I've had things thrown at me. I had a tambourine in the back of the head once. That wasn't very nice. <laughs> I know a producer who's he's got a, a temper on him, and uh, he got sick of this one vocalist who uh, I guess never... He showed up to the session not having written any lyrics at all <laughs> for the whole hour, like nothing. And I guess this producer got so mad at him that he threw a can of Dr. Pepper at his head, but a, a, a closed, a closed can, like full, you know, full can. And this dude is strong too. Like it could kill someone with that. I've only ever punched two people that I've worked with. <laughs> only so. What what caused that? Which is not not bad in in twenty odd years. No. Yeah. What one what, per what, decade? What causes you to to punch somebody in the studio? Uh, well, actually, by the time I did hit them, we weren't in the studio anymore. It was afterwards. <laughs> but they'd wound me up so much. Yeah, there was one guy. There was one guy who wasn't even in the band when I worked with them. He he joined later. And I ended up on on a tour with him, and he just kept saying to me, "Why why wouldn't you mix the album?" And I said, "Well, because the record company offered me like five pounds and a pickled egg to do it," and I said, "No, pickled egg." <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, but you mixed that one song." I said, "Yeah, I did, and I never got paid for it, and it shouldn't have even ended up on the album, but it did end up on the album because it was the best mix out of all of them." And he said, "Oh, you fucking rock star producer." Okay, you, oh, you've you ruined my album. I was like, you're not even on it, dude. You weren't in the band then. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and he continued to harass me and other people on the tour. And he, in fact, he got two beatings on that tour. But yeah, one day he just pushed it too far and I lost it, which doesn't happen very often, as anybody that knows me will tell you. I'm the most mild and meek-mannered kind of guy you could possibly meet. <laughs> Sounds like that that guy needed a, a, a perspective shift. Yeah, I shifted it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, Russ, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been excellent speaking with you for the past couple of hours. You too, man. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. I'm sure I've waffled a load of bullshit, but... You know, you can edit no. it out. <laughs> I, no, I, I, think, I don't think there will be much editing on this one. Cool. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.